Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred? Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle, it's a base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Friggin' ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and you should choose to accept it, is to take a seat and listen to this great podcast coming your way. That is the Middle Seats Podcast. We are the best seat in the house for all things entertainment. I'm the leader of this impossible mission force tonight, Andrew Roger, and I'm joined by my great team out in the field. Coming to you live from New York City itself. He's the super genius field analyst of my heart, Mr. Nate Lungarini. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic, Drew. Looking to, to solve some crimes and <laughs> hopefully fix some things before they become disasters, if you catch my meaning. And I won't tell you where he's coming from because I think it's supposed to be a top secret location because he's the wild card that could either stop the nuke from launching or accidentally launch it himself. Mr. Jake Hensler. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, man. I absolutely could accidentally launch a movie and not even realize. <laughs> I'm doing good. I've been super excited to talk about this movie. I've had multiple people tell me to stop talking about it, actually, if that's a spoiler or not. Right. It's an ex- it's an exciting one, uh, as you might have been able to gather from that intro that I put together very nicely, I would say, for myself. Uh, I think I deserve a little bit of a round of applause. Get the hell out yeah. of here, True. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just double Jake's claps so it sounds like two people clapped in editing. <laughs> I'm the editor, man. <laughs> yeah, true. The, the, <laughs> it doesn't help when the person protesting is the one editing. Um, but anyway, if you couldn't have guessed from that intro, we are reviewing Mission Impossible Fallout tonight, the sixth installment in the Mission Impossible franchise. But we've got a very full show before that. Uh, we're going to get into our lobby talk where we kind of, kind of banter about a certain topic of the week. This week, it's my week, and we'll get to that topic in a moment. Uh, And then we'll get into the biggest news of the week, and then we get into our feature review. First half with no spoilers, and second half with spoilers. So guys, these are some really good topics we have tonight. I mean, I know I say that all the time, but it's a really jam-packed show, so I want to get right into Lobby Talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You in the lobby? What do you look like? before you can make the lobby. So guys, it feels like it was just a year ago, and it was about just a year ago, maybe a little a little bit under a year since we first talked about Movie Pass. Do you guys remember this? We were fresh out of college, hopeful, excited. I do, I do. Vaguely. Vaguely? Vaguely remember it, yeah. Well, then you have a short memory. I do. No, it's that's a fact. <laughs> we should get that checked. Anyway, we were just talking about Movie Pass, uh, which of course is not a new company. It started back in like 2014, 2015. But it really broke onto the movie scene and changed the game when they dropped their subscription prices from $50 to $40 a month for one movie a day to $10 a month. And that's how it got everybody's attention. All three of us uh, have movie passes now. We each got it at different times. So we've been tracking this for a while. You know what I mean? As as obviously patrons do. And I think we've all gotten at least close to our money's worth. Uh, so mm-hmm. far, there are two options of what you could do. You could do the ten dollars a month, or you could pay for the whole year. We all, I think, did the monthly, right? Is no, that correct? No, I accidentally did the full year, so I'm really hoping they make it to the end of this year because then I'll definitely <laughs> get my money's worth. 
But for oh. now, I'm on the fence. <laughs> well, Drew, you got to explain to our listeners why it's an issue that we might not make it to the end of the year now. <laughs> right. So signs have been on the wall that things weren't doing well for a while. I, I can't remember or pinpoint the exact moments, but I remember like the highlights. Like first, they started to ask us to start taking pictures of our ticket stub, which I thought was kind of weird. Uh, and a little and, annoying. Yeah, and just a little annoying, but okay, whatever. That's not too hard. Uh, then they put limits on certain show times of when you could go see movies. So, like, if you wanted to go see The Incredibles, you'd be able to see it at 7, but not at 9.30 at this theater. You'd have to go to a different theater, which is, again, kind of weird and annoying, but whatever. Uh, then they started to get into the distribution of movie games, and it just did not work out. Uh, like, we all remember the gaudy debacle of 2018. <laughs> <laughs> God bless. Um, I remember it, but I still don't quite understand it, truthfully. <laughs> God bless the Gotti debacle of 2018. They tried to finance a few movies. They tried to distribute it. Then they blamed people when people weren't enjoying the films that they were distributing. But anyway, that's a whole different subject. Then they got into the peak pricing, which was, you know, you can go see this movie on opening weekend if you want, but it's going to cost you an additional $2 to go see it, which, okay, fine. Surge pricing, I get it. They need to make money somehow. But then the prices started to jump up to the point where it was almost as much as a monthly subscription to see one movie. Like, the last I checked, it was about $8 to see Teen Titans Go on a fucking, like, Sunday night. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Thursday night is when everything fell apart. Um, Very. So, opening night of Mission Impossible Fallout. The app crashed completely. Um, Nobody was able to use it, including me, who was trying to see Mission Impossible that night. And it later came out that MoviePass, they just went broke. They ran out of money. They straight out ran out of money. Uh, they had to borrow over $6 million from an independent person. $5 million of that dollar was cash. Can you imagine just running into an intern of MoviePass on the street with just $5 million cash to save their company? <laughs> Quick, please. All I'm saying is I hope they didn't make a stop at the bar before they went back to work. <laughs> if it was me, I would have. <laughs> right, right. At that point, you, you know the company's in trouble. Why don't you just get a drink out of it? Um so that was what they needed to do to keep the company afloat to today, and it's only gotten worse. Uh, certain movies have become blacked out completely. Like, you cannot see Mission Impossible Fallout, period, with the movie pass. Only really e-ticketing is working right now. And even that, I went to try to use e-ticketing to see Three Identical Strangers, the movie Jake was talking about on the last Freeze Frame episode, uh, and it didn't work. It straight up didn't work, so I had to pay for a ticket. And I know we sound spoiled and everything, but we are paying customers. You know, of this company. We'd hope that our, our the product that we are using is going to work. It's kind of an expected thing, even though we sound like brats. Right. So at the time of this recording, here's the latest update. And there might have been a bunch of things have changed since then. The company could be bankrupt by the time this comes out and like completely gone. The prices have been raised to $15 a month for the monthly subscribers. But there's a caveat to that as well. So you're paying five more dollars and you cannot see any new releases for about two weeks. That's what the CEO said has to be done to make sure that this company stays afloat. That's what annoys me the most, and especially for us, because we're trying to review them as soon as possible. So, <laughs> Right, that's the worst part for me. Um, so guys, I think the main question I have to start is, who's going to stick around? Are you guys going to keep MoviePass at this present point in time? Um, I'm going to have to see how it all plays out for now, truthfully. Because, I mean, if, if they like somehow get a bigger market and more people start to buy in and they can go back to the old ways, the best ways, um, then I will absolutely stick around. But, you know, because we're putting out content, we need to see these movies the night of or within the first few nights. So MoviePass is going to be borderline pointless for us if they keep on this trend. Yeah. Yeah. Starting with the Avengers, I knew right away that I can never see a huge movie opening night just because you have to show up to the theater 
before you get your ticket. And with pre-orders, it's almost impossible to see something huge like the Avengers. Right. But then uh, for Ant-Man, which I saw a couple weeks ago, the app just flat out did not work for me. Uh, and I had to pay out of pocket, even though I had the app ready to go. It just was not working for me. And now with this surge pricing and Mission Impossible just flat out being unable to work with MoviePass, I'm getting to the point where, like, I'm not using this anymore. You guys see more movies than I do that we don't review in the shows. So I was really getting my money's worth by seeing these opening releases and then the movies that I wanted to see throughout a month. If I can't see those opening weekend movies anymore... I'm only seeing maybe one, two, three movies a month that I wouldn't see otherwise using the movie pass. And if you're now going to charge me $20, $30 to see those movies with the surge pricing, it's just not even worth it. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to keep movie pass around long. I'm in the city, so I have access to a lot of AMC theaters. And they just came out with a competitor that, granted, is not nearly as good as the deal as MoviePass was, but it's still better than a service that only works half the time, if less. Yeah, that's that's a good pivot point, because I was going to talk about AMC's competitor plan. I think it's called Stubbs A-List or something like that. Yeah, and something correct. like that. A-List. On, on the surface, if you're looking at it, it doesn't seem like as good a plan, but right now, especially, it looks like gold. The plan is $20 a month you pay. You can go three times a week, uh, but those three times a week, you can see it in any format. You can see it in 3D. You can see it in IMAX. You can go to IMAX 3D. Any format, any time. You can see all three movies back to back to back if you'd like. And, and Nate stressed this because he lives in the city, you can do advanced ticketing with AMC's plan. That's huge. Right. That's, it's massive. For $10 more a month, sold. I didn't know you could do advanced screenings. You don't have to go to the theater. You can do it in advanced. Yes. Yeah, you could pre-order That's Avengers huge. or any huge movies I with didn't this know that. and not have to worry about losing a ticket if you try to go the day of like you had to do right. movie pass. Wow. Okay. That's actually huge because there is there are two AMCs by me. One of them is great. One of them is all right. Um but that's huge. If MoviePass continues to struggle, I might I might pivot also, and AMC might have just struck gold. If I were either of you, I would have pivoted by now. There's no AMCs near me. There's nothing around here. I have so many conflicting emotions about this whole thing. Because on the one hand, let's Look back at the good times. Let's have our, like, I will remember you montage. <laughs> because MoviePass saved, at least me, hundreds of dollars this year. Yeah, I've, I've saved a decent amount. I don't think anybody can argue with the fact that this wasn't a brilliant idea. Because it amassed 3 million subscribers and plenty more copycat services now. Right, exactly. It was a great idea, but they just set the bar too low. $10 a month was literally a steal for us customers because MoviePass is going out of business as right. a result. They right. should have started at like $20. And I know we're talking at like mm -hmm. hindsight 2020. But like, here's what I'm mad about. Like all of this stuff they're doing right now, I would gladly pay that $40 to $50 a month to go back to the one movie a day thing. Um, especially if that's my only option right now. Unfortunately, that's a very specific audience because I don't think there's that many people who see four to five movies a month, which is what would make $40 to $50 worth it. Right. That just brings me the question, who was MoviePass for originally? Because it was, originally it was probably for these hardcore movie fans. And then the general public got a taste of it, and I think they got way in over their head of how much the general public was going to be like, oh shit, mm -hmm. I'll sign up for this. I think, I think they way underestimated how many people were going to go for that deal. 
Yeah. I have a, I have a few friends who got it and they said like, honestly, I'm not a big movie person, but it's such a good deal. I'm going to start. And then that's what happened. People just took advantage. Right. Sort of rolling with yeah, it. Especially for someone in my kind of area where an average uh, theater experience is like a 16 to $18 ticket. In addition to movies and drinks, I went uh, with my buddy to go see Mission Impossible, and we spent fifty dollars for two of us and a bag of popcorn and uh, some candy. <laughs> Jesus, it's absurd. Yeah, but Jesus. that's what we needed to do because Movie Pass wasn't working. <laughs> yeah, that's so obnoxious. It's such a mess right now. And the phrase I keep from the most angry people, the phrase I keep hearing used is, "Was this a pyramid scheme?" Do you? <laughs> what do you guys think of that? Like, you know, by putting these surge pricing in and stuff like that. Getting them to pay, thinking that they have a good deal, but getting them to pay a lot to keep the people above afloat, and no one's actually making money. I don't think so. I think the the service was started with really good intentions. Yeah. Uh, the CEO even did a Ask Me Anything thread on Reddit a couple, couple weeks back, where he went over his mentality. Um, this is before the real financial issues were hitting, um, but a lot of people were still seeing through the seeing through the blinds there. And he went over how he really wanted this to encourage movie theaters to stay afloat. And on that angle, MoviePass was great because it got a lot of more people to go see movies they wouldn't otherwise see, mm-hmm. which helps not just MoviePass as a company, but movie theaters who are also struggling in all this. Uh, they need to have people go see films in order to make money. So I think it had good intentions. But again, that price bar at $10 was just too low for the wide stream appeal that this thing needed. But at the same time, I don't think $20 a month would have reeled in most people because most people don't see two to three movies a month. But I mean, they are now, now that there's a good deal, like 10 bucks a month, but I think 20 still wouldn't have quite reeled people in. So they're in a pretty big predicament. So that's, I think, the big takeaway uh, that we've learned through this probably... 11-month experience we've had is that this concept is great, but the execution was not atrocious, but pretty sloppy, and it ended up costing the company. One final thing I want to say, Mr. CEO of Regal Cinemas, if you're listening to me right now, uh, can you look at what AMC is doing and try the same thing, please? (laughs) Maybe? Please. So, without further ado, let's get into the news of the week. And this just in, a Newsbreak special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. Okay, so guys, some really interesting news items we have today. Let's get into some of the other things that have been happening over the last week, week and a half. Um, So a couple of weeks ago, we learned that James Gunn had been fired by Disney from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And the reason was uh, some inappropriate jokes that he made on his Twitter back in like 2011, 2010, uh, that were resurfaced by some conservative pro-Trump Twitter people uh, after he made negative comments about the president. Those people resurfaced those tweets. It became a big widespread thing, and then Disney felt the need that they had to go in and fire Gunn for those tweets. And the tweets were bad, of course. They were about, uh, they were there was references to rape. I believe there was a couple references to pedophilia. They, they were bad. But it has caused a lot of mixed opinions because a lot of people, there's one camp that's like James Gunn should be held accountable for what he said. All of this stuff is awful, equal accountability, equal punishment. And then there's the other camp that's preaching the whole 
you know, he's learned his lesson. He's not that same person that he was. People should be able to live with a second chance. Uh, And the people that are fully supporting James Gunn, the most vocal group, is his cast. His Guardians of the Galaxy cast are standing behind him. This is a letter that was made public, I believe, yesterday, at the time of recording yesterday, and it's signed by every major member of the Guardians of the Galaxy cast. Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Karen Gillan, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, Michael Rooker, and Palm Clementif all put their name on this letter. I'm not going to read the whole letter. I'm going to read a brief excerpt from the beginning and the end. So guys, just bear with me for a second. We fully support James Gunn. We were all shocked by his abrupt firing last week and have intentionally waited these 10 days to respond in order to think, pray, listen, and discuss. At this time, we've been encouraged by the outpouring of support from fans and members of the media who wish to see James reinstated as director as Volume 3, as well as discouraged by those so easily duped into believing the many outlandish conspiracy theories surrounding him. So that's the beginning at the end. It is our hope that what has transpired can serve as an example for all of us to realize the enormous responsibility we have to ourselves and to each other regarding the use of our written word where we etch them in digital stone. This is a very touchy subject. Nate, I'm going to start with you because I remember when we first talked about this, you were the one that broke the story to us. What what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, this is definitely a, a weird case. So you have uh, James Gunn with these really bad tweets. There's no um, no defending the tweets. They are incredibly poorly tasted jokes. During all this, it came out that he apologized for these tweets long before these tweets resurfaced recently. Right, even before they hired him. Even before yeah, yeah. they hired him. So Disney was aware of these tweets when they hired him and only fired him after the public outcry. So right off the bat, I feel like there's... There's just like a disconnect where this is very much a business decision on Disney's part. And now that the public outcry seems to be kind of reversing, um, it's just it's very interesting to see where this goes from here. I think the most obvious comparison that a lot of people might make just looking at the headlines is what happened to Roseanne. Right. Where she was fired from her TV show for tweets that were considered racist. I think that what Roseanne's scenario was and what James Gunn's scenario was are so different because what Roseanne did happened now. She wrote that tweet now in 2018. What James Gunn wrote happened so many years ago and apologized before it. And since then, the whole internet culture of remembering what goes online stays online forever, that wasn't the case back when these tweets were written. Um, So I don't think a lot of people would have understood that it would have come back to bite James Gunn like this. Do I support the tweets? Absolutely not. But I do kind of stand with the cast and a lot of the internet at the moment that his apology then and now are both heartfelt. And I feel like it was a very rash business move on Disney's part to fire him in the first place. Right. Um, Yeah, I pretty much agree with everything you just said. I don't know. You know, I know there were jokes, obviously poor in poor taste, a guy trying to get, get attention, not okay, but he did apologize for them long, long ago. He's re-apologized for them. So if you feel like he needs a punishment, fine. Maybe give him a pay cut or maybe you know take him off producing credits or something like that. But this is his trilogy where he's at least done two out of three. And he did such a good job with both of them. And it was such a long time ago. I don't think firing him is truly fair, if, if I'm being honest. Not he. There should be some kind of reprimands. 
but I don't think firing from the project is totally fair because it was so long ago. I don't even think there's any reprimands that should be done today. Like, this was handled years ago. Like, he did nothing yeah. wrong here. Like, first of all, I don't know why celebrities don't just go back and delete all this shit. Like, I don't know why <laughs> this was still around. I was under place. the impression these tweets were deleted. That, But again, you can't just erase stuff from the Right, right, right. It's, it's written in permanent ink uh, at any point. Um, just something about James Gunn's career. This is a guy that made, like, before he got to Guardians of the Galaxy, he was known for, like, his shock humor and his subversive humor. Yeah, and kind, stuff of, like kind that. of raunchy and a little right. odd for the public eye, but... Right. That's his style. Like, so it completely lines up with me that he would have tweeted something like that back then. Um, it doesn't make it right, and he's clearly grown as a person since then. As you can see, the maturity in his movies step up. I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is easily his most mature movie, as opposed to a movie like Super, which is a really cynical, nihilistic, but underrated superhero movie that he made years ago. Right. It makes sense that he would do this back then, but it also makes sense that he's evolved past this point. And I think you said it really well. He's matured, he's grown, and he's not hes not that out-of-touch, poor-taste person he was. Right. He's much different now. He's matured. So I think firing him is pretty unfair. Right. And, Nate, I think you absolutely nailed it with the Roseanne comparison, how that's just not fair. It's not a fair comparison. Because she said that, like, two, three days before she was fired. She clearly has not grown. And she was right. punished and for it. And she is the same person. Right. James Gunn is clearly not. Right. And I just think this sets, it just sets a dangerous precedent. It's If it's clear that signs have been made towards progress. And just like going off of whatever public, the angry pitchforks and torches wants, and just making decisions based on that is bad. It's not good. You cannot let that influence your behind the scenes decisions. And that's exactly what happened here. So... Yeah, it's a, just a messy situation. We'll have to see where it goes from here. Um, but let's move on to something a little lighter. Uh, and let's get into the big hot trailer so far of the week, which was the third and probably final trailer for Venom. I'm Eddie Brock. I'm a reporter. I found something really bad. This is the new race, new species. A higher life form. You have no idea how much you're scaring me right now. We are Venom. That was a snippet of the trailer for Venom, which is directed by Ruben Fleischer, who has quite the eclectic filmography. Uh, he made Zombieland. He also made Gangster Squad, uh, 30 Minutes or Less. Uh, he is the choice to direct this comic book film starring Venom, who is making his second on-screen appearance. Uh, besides his work in Spider-Man 3, which was, of course, critically acclaimed. <laughs> uh, it, Tom Hardy plays the role of Eddie Brock this time around. Uh, he is joined by Michelle Williams, Riz Ahmed, Jenny Slate, and supposedly Woody Harrelson, although he's nowhere to be seen in these trailers. Uh, it's opening on October 5th, I believe, the beginning of October, and it is probably the next big superhero movie to come. So, guys... This is the third trailer. This is definitely the best look we've had of Venom himself. What do you guys think of the look? What do you guys think of the look of the film? What do you guys think about life, Jake? Do we know what this... We don't know what the movie's going to be rated yet, right? It's not official? We do not. 
I really hope it's R. Yeah. If I think if it's PG-13, there's no shot that this is decent. <laughs> it's just camping. Um, it is a game changer. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, it's kind of like the whole Deadpool thing. If this somehow isn't rated R, it's not going to be the same. Uh, that being said, I think Venom looks really cool. It looks like Venom is getting his justice. He looks pretty intimidating. He looks pretty psychotic. We see in the trailer he's talking about eating people's organs and limbs. So fine. That is Venom. And calling people turds. Yeah, I didn't like that part. That seemed a little out of character and kind of dumb, truthfully. But him talking about eating people's pancreases, I was like, oh, okay. So that, that's Venom for you. Oh, that's fair. Right. <laughs> um, I just don't know how I feel about the story yet, truthfully. Not sold. Nady? Well, <laughs> right off the bat, this was a very interesting movie because this is a Venom movie who is arguably one of Spider-Man's greatest villains appearing in a movie without Spider-Man. So right off the bat, that was a red flag for me just by the announcement of this movie. Um, my interest was perked during the last trailer, um, but I think I'm kind of settled back down into a negative camp, mostly because Tom Hardy does not look good in here. <laughs> he is trying to pull off this, I guess, American accent, I guess. Bro- Bronx. But it's like Bronx. It sounds like yeah. he's eight years old. <laughs> he sounds awful uh, yeah truthfully <laughs> tom hardy's one of my absolute favorite actors i've loved him pretty much everything but i am actually not sold on him as eddie brock if i'm being honest he just seems like could i mean i know what you know he looks homeless because venom is taking him over but he just doesn't ever really look like great <laughs> scream it to the rooftop sister i the yeah. second line of the trailer he lost me he goes i'm eddie brock i'm a reporter in that ridiculous ridiculous accent I'm a reporter. Yeah, right. Like, like a baby. I was like, <laughs> like an actual. Infant. I was like, we haven't even gotten to the symbiote stuff yet, and I'm already. You already lost me. Yeah, and we all know that. I mean, at least the three of us know that they announced it, and they're basically filming it like uh, the next week. Like it was super. It's been really rushed too. So I'm not totally sold on it yet. Yeah, I. This looks bad, guys. I just. I can't get myself on board with it. Like everything you guys have said is true so far. Tom Hardy seems miscast. Uh, the whole thing was seems rushed. The whole concept of it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, considering, yeah, he is, he's an anti-hero. But, like, his, it's his job to eat faces. Like, are we really going to follow this guy around? Oh, and- if you're going to pull that cord, we don't know what the plot of the movie is yet, because we're just seeing trailers, but Venom in the comic books is an anti-hero. He is not full villain. He does a lot of back and forth. Just throwing it out there for the comic book fans out there. I'm trying to represent. Like, I know he is generally the arch nemesis of Spider-Man, but I actually have heard that he's, you know, if he sees something he doesn't agree with, he does stand up for what's right in Venom's mind. Okay, <laughs> but does that work cinematically? Like that can that's all fine and dandy. We don't on know the page. yet. We haven't seen the movie. No, we don't know. It, it doesn't look like it's going <laughs> to work for me. The CGI looks like fucking <laughs> shit, in my opinion. Like. That's the thing that I can't comment on, and I agree, Drew. Go ahead. Yeah. It looks like Microsoft Paint. It especially looks bad to me when uh, Tom Hardy is not full Venom, and, like, there's pieces of Venom coming out. It looks awful. It looks like an ink blot. Like, I'm just... I don't know why they do that, because they did that same thing with Spider-Man 3, where the actor would, like, pull his face mask back so you could see the actor's face and it looks stupid and it looks just as stupid here as it did right. then like 
Oh, yeah, when they cut to that at the very end of the trailer where you see half his face, half Venom, I honestly thought the Spider-Man's 3 stuff looked better. The way they did it there where it peeled back off of his neck, as opposed to, like, having half the face floating above. Like, it looks awful. Are we learning that super super suits don't really look good animated? <laughs> Not fast enough. You would think we would have learned that from Green Lantern, yeah. <laughs> right, and at Deadpool, hello? <laughs> right. Um, I will say this. I actually think Riz Ahmed looked really, really sinister. I think whatever he's doing, it looks like it's working. Like, as far as acting goes. He looks pretty sinister. He looks pretty diabolical. Right. He had me until they did that shot where, like, it's half Eddie Brock out of the Venom and half Riz Ahmed out of uh, white white chocolate Venom, whatever he is. (laughs) (laughs) Like... He's not Carnage because I my theory is that Woody Harrelson's going to end up being Carnage and they're going to like. That's what it sounds like because Carnage is red, right? Which we have not seen exactly, yet. and they're going to set that up for a sequel because we've seen nothing of Woody Harrelson so far. It's going to be like Yellow Jacket Syndrome from Ant Man or just uh, hundreds of other things. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and the effects on that looked really bad. I want you guys to go back and look at Riz Ahmed yeah, in that shot. They can't be done right with the effects, but there's two months to go. I hope not. Ugh. but like. It's it's gray blob versus black blob. It's going to be oil sludge the movie. <laughs> yeah. Story-wise, we'll see. I mean, there's the Jekyll and Hyde dynamic of Venom is interesting. It always has been. Um, I would be absolutely shocked if this works. In a good way. Yeah, I'm Me not too. sold on it yet. I have a couple friends who think it looks good. Uh, I'm not sold on it yet, though. Yeah. So, October 5th, we'll know for sure. We'll be surely having a review of that one. I'm sure we'll have plenty to say. Okay, moving gears a little bit more, uh, let's move to Star Wars. Of course, one of the biggest franchises in the world. They are officially starting shooting on Episode Nine this week. Uh, and to celebrate that, Disney and Lucasfilm and Star Wars, they released the official cast list for Star Wars Episode Nine. So, all returning, Daisy Ridley, Adam Driver, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Lupita Nyong'o, Domhnall Gleeson, Kelly Marie Tran, Billy Lord, all back. Kerry Russell, who first worked with director J.J. Abrams on Mission Impossible 3, that's a good segue to what we're talking about later, will make her franchise debut. Um, And then here comes the really fascinating information. Mark Hamill's back, uh, which, if you've seen The Last Jedi, is a very interesting twist, but it also, there's an easy line of thinking of how he's back. Anthony Daniels back as C-3PO, that's a no-brainer. Billy D. Williams is back as Lando Calrissian which is pretty exciting, to, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the main focus is here. Carrie Fisher, who, of course, tragically passed away in December 2016, will be in this movie. Now, how will she be in this movie? Uh, obviously, there's no footage of her for this movie specifically. Well, J.J. Abrams will be using unused footage that he shot for Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. And here was his reasoning in that statement. We desperately love Carrie Fisher. Finding a truly satisfying conclusion to the Skywalker saga without her eluded us. We were never going to recast or use a CG character. With the support and blessing from her daughter, Billy, Billy Lord, who I was talking about earlier, we have found a way to honor Carrie's legacy and role as Leia in Episode Nine. So, a lot of positive support for this online. Mark Hamill has some really nice things to say about this. Um, Carrie Fisher's like family is all behind this. What do we think of this? Because this is not uncommon territory movies have done this before however it is a bit tricky nate what do you think um i think it's interesting but not at all surprising just because they left the door open 
for episode eight for there to need to be a conclusion to uh, Carrie Fisher and uh, Leia as a character. So uh, I think it, I think it's all just depends on what kind of footage they have left over from previous films to satisfy that. Right. And I'm just kind of glad that the whole cast seems to be on board with it. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if they can do it well, I'm all for it. Because I remember thinking the same thing when, you know, she's alive at the end of episode eight, obviously. Uh, so I remember thinking, okay, they filmed all their scenes. They got her everything they needed for episode eight. But she's going into episode nine alive. What are they What are they going to do with this? How do they write her out if they do write her out? I'm just... You know, I don't know what the story is for episode nine, obviously. I don't know what her, you know, her role is in episode nine, how much she's going to be in it or not. So there's obviously a huge predicament around it. But if they can make this work, then, yeah, I'm all for it. Yeah, I'm wondering what the context of the repurposing of scenes will be. It's going to be interesting to see. Because in my head, how they could have gotten around this is if episode nine picks up like six to ten months later after episode eight. And she's just, she's died in battle or something like that. That's what I kind of thought also. Which I don't think would be egregious. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be disrespectful. Right. But it's also not a great send Right, right. Because then she's basically limited to title crawl or maybe a flashback scene. Well, they could also, there could be a lot of like paying tribute to her. Maybe they have like a monument erected towards her. There could be a lot of like, you know. That's true. Yeah. So there, there was a way to do it respectfully. It's not the best thing. Um, but now I'm wondering what these scenes are going to be. Are they going to be flashbacks? Is she going to show up like a ghost, kind of like how we expect, spoilers for Last Jedi, how we expect Mark Hamill will? Um, it's just, it's very interesting to see. The most apt comparison I could think of is Philip Seymour Hoffman in the Hunger Games series, where they shot Mockingjay Part 1 and 2 back-to-back. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman made it most of the way through shooting, mm-hmm. but they had to find ways to work around it. Um, and this is, that's the best I could come up with. Like he died in the middle of shooting, not way before shooting. So, you know, there's a standard of getting these characters in films. Like Star Wars already tried this with Rogue One where they put Peter Cushing's Tarkin in there as just completely CGI. And I think that would have been ridiculous. I'm glad they didn't do that again. They even did that with Carrie Fisher as a young version. Yeah. 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 And I thought that looked great to be honest, but like you can't do that long term, especially if she's going to have a major role. For sure. Um, Yeah. So I think we're all very fascinated to see what we'll do. We'll have plenty of Star Wars speculation before its release date next December, not December 2018, December 2019, uh, the conclusion of this Skywalker saga. So that'll do it for our news segment, and that'll move into our feature review of Mission Impossible Fallout. The end you've always feared is coming, and the blood will be on your hands. Solomon Lane escaped in Paris. I don't trust anybody outside of this room. You go rogue, he's been authorized to hunt you down and kill you. No hard feelings. This is a bad idea. Is it ever a good one? Oh my God. Mission Impossible Fallout is the sixth film in the Mission Impossible franchise, which began back 22, 22 years ago in 1996 with Brian De Palma's original, still kicking with us, Tom Cruise. He's old, but he doesn't look any different, and he's still Ethan Hunt. Uh, this is the series' first direct sequel, I would say. They're usually about three to four years apart as far as release, 
Tom Cruise has gone back and forth between long hair and short hair. He picked short hair for this one. <laughs> He's Ethan Hunt again, basically. After capturing Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris, last movie, he was the leader of the rogue assassin group The Syndicate. Ethan has been tracking down stragglers who followed Lane. They've formed this kind of sub-terrorist group called The Apostles. Very ominous name. Ooh. Their plan is to use three balls of plutonium to arm these nuclear weapons around the world that would send the world into chaos. Ethan is joined by Benji, uh, his field analyst, played by Simon Pegg, uh, Luther, of course, his kind of techie guy, played by Ving Rhames, and they are joined on their mission this time by August Walker. He's a CIA assassin. He's played by Henry Cavill and his mustache. Uh, yes. The most expensive <laughs> mustache of all time, and I'm sure we'll get into the backstory on that. We've talked about it before, but somewhere in that mix, as usual, is Ilsa Faust, played again by Rebecca Ferguson. She has her own agenda, and it's all just kind of boiling up in this big action extravaganza. The trailers were exciting. I think we can all agree on that, mm-hmm. but that can often happen. You know, we've seen exciting trailers before. So what do we think? Let's start with Jake. Oh, baby. Um, so I was unbelievably high on this movie for quite a few days, maybe even still. I'm not even sure. But um, yeah, there's no hiding it. This movie's unbelievable. I mean, you pretty much can't do action much better than this. And if you do, you hope the plot holds up. The plot's actually really good. So not only is it a good story, a coherent story, a well-written, tight story, they pair it with action that just blows your mind. I mean, like, I don't want to yell because Nate will have a lot of, like, post-production editing to do, but I can't get over how good this movie was. I can't get over it. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. You know, anybody else can carry on from there. Wow. (laughs) Nate, can you match that high? Uh, I definitely enjoyed Mission Impossible. I've always enjoyed them. Um, I think my only complaint with the series as a whole is that each movie in itself can be pretty forgettable. Like, I remember walking to the theater and going, wait a second what happened for the last two movies and i realized i was mixing up ghost protocol and rogue nation so much in my head and needed to like go through the wikipedia pages to remember what happened that actually Um, did happen with me and my dad so i know what you mean yeah um but i always remember like the standout scenes so i definitely enjoyed the heck out of this one i think it just continues a great trend that a lot of movies in hollywood are doing by making a lot of practical action scenes Um, with practical effects and real stunt work, and it shows. There are a couple of standout scenes um, still strung together by a high stakes, but a lot of fun, and definitely twisty-turny as par for the course. Overall, thoroughly enjoyed it, and looking forward to going into the deep dive later. Hmm. So that wasn't quite the high. That was a good high. No, I'm super high. I'm, Um, like, on a cloud. Right. Let me... Jake, you got room on that cloud? Can you, like, move a little to the side? Yeah, we'll add some some <laughs> um, evaporation and get it going. Right. Wow, look at your fifth-grade science right there. Um, I almost <laughs> jumbled it up, so. <laughs> uh, guys, it feels hyperbolic to call this one of the most exciting and best action movies ever made. It really does. Like, I've been seeing a lot of people say that, but at the same time, like, I, I'm having a hard time, like, divorcing myself from that thought. This thing fucks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, for, for me, I'd say Mad Max is better. Take Mad Max out of the equation. What's a better pure action movie? 
Right. It's I'm, hard. I'm coming up a little empty. Yeah, and I, I'm sure we could think about it for a while. We could be like, oh, this and this. This thing, it starts with about, I would say, like five, ten minutes of like slow exposition. It sets mm-hmm. everything up slowly, entertainingly, but slowly. Right. And then at minute 11 until minute 147, <laughs> it's the foot on the gas, and it does not stop. This thing moves at a breathtaking pace with some of the best practical stunts and most amazingly directed set pieces I've ever seen. Um, yeah. It's just Christopher McQuarrie had a lot of pressure on him because he is the first director to return back-to-back movies in this franchise. That's kind of what made these movies unique uh, beyond the big practical how can Tom Cruise try to kill himself <laughs> part of it. Um, they each had a different style. They started with Brian De Palma. Then they went to like the over-the-topness of John Woo. Then kind of the subtle spiness of... J.J. Abrams, the playful fun of Brad Bird in Ghost Protocol, which was previously my favorite of the franchise. Um, And then Christopher Quarry is kind of a mixture of J.J. Abrams and Brad Bird's style, I would say. He knows how to balance the fun. Not that Mm. Mission Impossible 3 wasn't fun, but it was definitely more gritty and more dark than some of the That was my previous favorite before this one, MI3. I love J.J. Abrams' gritty gritty take on it, right? but I just, I don't think he, he matched this one. Macquarie had a lot to live up to, and he's the writer-director, too. Um, and this thing just gets your adrenaline pumping it. It has those kind of, like, white-knuckle, holding-the-side-of-the-seats moments. Incredible stunts and determination by Tom Cruise. A heart-pounding score by Lauren Balfe. Um, and what puts this one over the edge even more for me, beyond Ghost Protocol, which had some amazing set pieces of its own, is it does a better job with the subtle emotions of everything. This is the first movie where Ethan Hunt feels like Ethan Hunt, like a character, not Tom Cruise. They really get into what makes Ethan Hunt the hero that he is. And I really appreciated that, them taking the time to try to do that in the midst of this absolute chaos. That's one thing that really made it go over the edge for me. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot of criticism of this movie, and I think a lot of my positive thoughts stem from the exact same things we've been talking about. The action set pieces are phenomenal. Each one, I still remember walking out of the theater and letting it fester for a couple days in my head. Me too. It it did a fantastic job keeping it memorable. And I think it did a much better job um, when you compare the last film to me. Because when I was going through my Mission Impossible Wikipedia pages here, just refreshing myself, I realized that I didn't remember almost anything from Rogue Nation. I remember the box at the end. And, like, him hanging off the plane um, that you saw in all the trailers. And that was about it. A lot of my favorite scenes came from Ghost Protocol. And then the first one is just iconic. This one, the bathroom scene that you see in the trailer where Henry Cavill's fists make that pumping noise. Beautiful. Really fun. Yeah, he, he like, broke the air when he punched it. I just, I don't... (laughs) It's great. When we get back into spoiler section, I really want to go over this scene because it's so much fun. Oh, Beautifully choreographed. Um, even even they do a good job with some of the gadget stuff in here. There's a lot of really cool things that um, seem par for the course for a Mission Impossible movie, but executed in a really well-done uh, manner. I can't give enough praise to the director and the cast for pulling off a pretty seamless movie. It was great. For me, obviously, the action is unbelievable, and it's become very clear to me after Mad Max and now this stunts and practical action when done right are clearly just the best way to do it if you can do it right but even take take that out of it 
because Andrew was right from minute 11 or whatever it was you just go and go and go so not only is it hard to keep up that pace and um and that timing and precision not only action and the story it is it is not sloppy at all it is clear cut it is well edited well directed well written like from top to bottom just everything is well done and like pretty much no sloppiness whatsoever and i feel like when you try to attempt that as a director you can you know misfire a little bit you can lose your pacing you can lose your tone i didn't get any of that from this like at all it's it's honestly remarkable and i think nate you were right it's really aided by the cast um henry cavill has been in the doghouse for me for a little while um just because (laughs) i don't like his portrayal of superman really well um but he is very good here in a really tough role um, and he does a lot of the physicality. He tries to match Tom Cruise. He can't do that. He's yeah, no, I know. charismatic <laughs> as all heck. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess that's why he doesn't get bored like James Bond, because he's jumping out of planes and stuff. He's a psycho. Yeah, he's great again as Ethan Hunt. I would say this is probably my second favorite performance in the series from him. He has a lot of emotional stuff he has to do in Mission Impossible 3, and he does a really good job there. Yeah, I agree. He does. But he, he's grown into this character so well. Uh, the supporting cast, Rebecca Ferguson, is amazing. I yeah. love her. She's so good at that as that character. Alec Baldwin does a really good job. I think Simon job. Pegg does a really good job too. He's yeah. really growing into his own for this franchise. Right. Simon Pegg might be my favorite. Yeah. He's just so like the everyman. You know, he's the guy that he's the guy that we would be if we were on the team, just watching <laughs> Ethan Hunt do all this mm-hmm. and be like, what in the hell is he doing now? Mm-hmm. I find it best not to look. He's the right level of comic relief because yes, he's the everyman and definitely the audience reaction on screen. But he also contributes to the team in his right. own way, too, so he doesn't feel, like, tacked on. Mm-hmm. He's not the guy he's got to get carried on the backpack. He pulls his own and in a really unique way, too. Absolutely. He's super competent, and he's one of the most integral members of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys want to move into spoilers? Do you have anything else general you want to talk about? I mean, Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that I can address before going in there. Let's get to our ratings, and you can address that right before you give your rating. How about? Um, so here on the middle seats, if you're listening for the first time, we operate on the seat scale as we... Uh, rate movies. Let me run down each of them right now. If a movie has almost no flaws, if we think it's really close to perfect or perfect, we give it a royal throne. Uh, if it's a movie that's really good, but has a few flaws, you know, it's not quite perfect, we give it a plush recliner. Um, if it's a movie that has a mix, you know, it's kind of, it's mediocre, but it's on the positive side. It's a good movie with some really glaring flaws. We give it a wooden seat. Uh, if it's the flip of that, if it's a movie we think is really not great, but it has a really couple standout things, we give it a damp lawn chair. And then if it's a movie uh, like hopefully Venom's not going to end up being, we give it a sleazy outhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting way to put it. <laughs> right. I just wanted to call back to that because that's that was the phrase that was on my mind the entire time I was watching that trailer. Anyway. Oh, and also, if we think it's a movie-going experience you have to see with a crowd or on a big screen, we will put the little moniker of a bag of popcorn on it. So, Jake, what would you rate Mission Impossible Fallout? Um, before I get quite there, I just want to reiterate how unbelievable the action and story are, followed by I th- how well I think they actually balance each character. Like, I think each character actually gets good screen time and gets enough to do and even gets an arc. I think in an action movie, that can lag. I think story can lag. So not only is the action borderline unparalleled, they give plenty of work for the characters and the story. Um, I think the camera work should be nominated. This probably won't get nominated because it's not the Academy kind of movie. I would love a cinematography to get nominated. Um, I just can't have enough things to say good about this movie. I'm going to hesitate to say this because I want to let it sit a little bit more. I'm still high, obviously. 
This might be my favorite movie of the year. I'm going to go Royal Throne with bag of popcorn, uh, soda, ice cream. Get, you know, you know, see it in IMAX if you can. That's what I did. I loved it. Go with your friends. Get a huge audience. Just do everything you can to see this movie oh my God. in theaters. Do you have no student loans to pay for? You gonna pay for all this? <laughs> oh no, I do. It's just worth it. I'm. De- <laughs> oh my god. I think I really do think this is one of the surprisingly randomly Mission Impossible Six for no reason at all is one of the best action movies you will see in a long time. I I have to give Royal Throne. That was just amazing. Well, there's certainly a reason to it. You know what I mean? But, but it's just <laughs> random. Since when is a six installment the best one by far? Very true. Very very true. <laughs> Nate, how do you feel? I I feel. Pretty darn positive, but not quite as positive as Jake there. This is a plush recliner for me. Um, the pros for this movie will hammer to death because they're just worth talking about. The action's phenomenal. The characters are charismatic. Everybody's a lot of fun. And the movie is exciting from start to finish. There's plenty of twists and turns that make the audience feel engaged and um, surprised at all the right moments. Everything's done uh, to a T in that regard. Uh, so definitely a plush recliner, definitely a bag of popcorn because the action is hands down the best. Uh, I think my only cons keeping this away from a royal throne for me um, is dwelling a little bit into spoiler territory. But long story short, I'm just not a huge fan of what the movie does with the villains at the end of the movie. Uh, and there's a couple of scenes that rely on the audience's knowledge of previous movies, particularly the last one, obviously, because same director, same cast, um, that just detracts from this movie a little bit. Um, and that just took me out of the mo- the movie for just those quick little m- moments. In terms of pacing, in terms of tone, this movie nails it, um, and it definitely deserves the high praise that it's getting. Interesting. I'm very interested to see what you're talking about specifically when we get into the spoiler section. Um... Jake, I think I could see this movie ending up with a nomination, kind of like Mad Max Fury Road did with all the technical categories and everything like that. I don't think mm-hmm. we're talking like Best Picture like Mad Max had or anything like no, that. No, I was so surprised but so happy when that happened. <laughs> yeah, right. That was like, this will never happen again, so let's just savor this. Um, yeah, exactly. The reason that these action scenes work so well is because of something you nailed, Jake, with how Mad Max did it and how like those movies, like The Raid did it and stuff like that. Really mm-hmm. good action movies. They use long cuts. They use long shots with wide angles so you can see the actual stunt work. Uh, Not Taken 3? Right, exactly. Not (laughs) Taken 3. Not even the Bourne movies, to be honest. Because, like, the Bourne movies are intense, but, like, I can't tell you, like, finishing moves or stuff like that. Here, we're going to go into detail about, like, specific things that happen in these action scenes because you can fucking see them. It's it's amazing. It's It's almost revolutionary, it feels like even though it seems like the most obvious thing. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf in here right now, and I have Mad Max Fury Road and Captain America Civil War right next to each other. Uh, And those are two of my favorite action movies of the last couple of years. And I think Mission Impossible Fallout deserves a place right on top, right with them. It's not my favorite movie of the year. It is certainly in the top five. It will certainly be in the top ten, unless this is an amazing year. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely royal throne for me. That will self-destruct in five seconds. Uh, So I better talk quickly. Uh, Back to (laughs) popcorn. Absolutely back with popcorn. IMAX. I didn't get a chance to see it in IMAX yet. Did you guys? I know. Yeah, Jason. I saw it in IMAX. It was awesome. I saw it in um, AMC's Dolby thing. I'm not sure if that's the same thing. Right. I just saw it on standard. I need to see it again. I think we're all saying go, go, go if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, I really Absolutely. thought this would be the first time we all 
cumulatively give a royal throne. I thought this would be it. Sorry yeah. to disappoint, ah, Jake. <laughs> so <laughs> close. Nate, <laughs> I thought this would be it. Nate clearly has a reason why he's not giving it a royal throne. And I think well, Yeah, let's go to spoilers. I want to Maybe hear he'll sway us. I don't know. I'm an open-minded man, I think, at least. Um, if you have not seen Mission Impossible Fallout, this is where you bug out. Join us at the end where Nate is going to make some very important announcements. If you have seen Mission Impossible Fallout, please join us. Come into our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So I guess I don't really want to wait any longer. Nate, what what are you referencing? Yeah, I honestly, I just don't think I like the character of Solomon Lane. It, it's like almost trying to make a, a Batman-Joker relationship in the Mission Impossible movies, and it just doesn't sit with me i it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it falls off for me because uh, i like i liked his little bit at the end of rogue nation um but i feel like it was just kind of isolated to that movie so to bring him back here and then to make him such a vital part of this movie was a little off-putting for me because i really liked henry cavill like oh, at, kicked ass. isolated on his own um what they did with his character especially um, all the cool infiltrating stuff of the CIA that they did with his character um, was a lot, a lot of fun. And I just feel like whenever we cut back to Solomon Lane's master plan with the nukes, it just felt a little too over the top um, and reminded me a little bit of the last James Bond movie where they had to tie the um, blowfold, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inspector. Yeah, they, they had to tie Blowfold back to the previous movies. This is by no means nearly as bad. <laughs> um, but it just it just gave me that vi- bad vibe a little bit. Um, because if you look at his actions, especially in when he had those last couple scenes in Kashmir, there was just like a lot of stuff where I feel like Solomon Lane was acting completely irrationally. And now you could make the argument that he's acting irrationally because of his hatred of Ethan Hunt. But then, why go through all the trouble? Why not just kill his ex-wife or um, make the thing impossible to set off? It just it felt weird to me. Um, and I, I felt a little disconnected through all that. It brought me back once we got to the helicopter chase scene, because that's what I came to see the movie Unbelievable for. Unbelievable chase But <laughs> um, I think it, it all just kind of ties back to Solomon Lane as a character. It feels like the wrong kind of character for this type of movie, where everyone's so calm and calculated to have such an emotionally driven character, which feels like an oxymoron because he is so cold in his speech and mannerisms. It's just a weird mix for me. See, I I think that's really interesting because I actually kind of liked that they're potentially kind of making an arch nemesis for Ethan Hunt, you know, as the sixth installment here. I thought that was pretty cool. I actually thought it worked. He's a bizarro version of Ethan Hunt. He is Ethan Hunt if Ethan Hunt was the absolute extreme. You know, I'm a super assassin, but I've decided that the world is no longer worth saving. Ugh, see, I I don't like that idea at all. That feels like we're going back to, like, superhero territory. I don't want that in Mission Impossible movie. I want to see my secret agents do impossible things. Beating the villain by not outsmarting the villain, but by out um, playing the villain emotionally just doesn't do it for these kinds of movies. I want to see them be smart. That's not how this movie was solved. I want to see them solving the action through crazy set pieces, crazy stunts, crazy stuff, and 
the lot of the supporting characters beat the nuclear bombs by outplaying the hubris of Solomon Lane's character. For me, the the evolution of the character makes sense. He was that cold and calculating guy in Rogue Nation, and I think the version we're seeing of him now is the guy that's maybe not irrational, but he's willing to stay behind and die, you know, with those bombs and everything. He's a guy that decided that he has nothing to lose and he's going to go out with this nihilistic attitude and this hatred of the IMF. You know what I mean? And I and I think the buildup works because not only did Ethan Hunt foil his plans in uh, Rogue Nation, which he then spent what two years in prison for or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. beaten and tortured and yeah, moving around from prison lost. to prison too. Yeah, yeah, everything he built was lost. And then Ethan, who obviously hates him, has to save him to prevent something else happening, which is another character arc for Ethan. And then Solomon comes back and almost blows up the you know a big portion of the Earth and kills his ex-wife but still kind of lover is i know it's emotional but it's huge for both of their arcs and i get what you mean because it is comic booky i didn't think of it that way but i think the story makes it work for me personally Mm -hmm. i think they build enough for both characters for me to have it fit don't get me wrong i i loved the the springing scene where they had to rescue him posing as the other characters i thought that was great but then when the movie kind of pivoted into how Henry Cavill wanted to let him out because this was actually Lane's plan all along. That's where the movie kind of lost me. And I'm like, that's where I started to get the Spectre vibes um, from James Bond. And that's kind of where it lost me a little bit and then proceeded to have little little drops of negativity throughout the, the ending of the movie. Hmm. But honestly, that's kind of where I want to drop it. I think just as a whole, I don't mm-hmm. like that character. Um and I just don't think that's something that my opinion is going to change even looking at this factually. But I do want to get into the positives because I have much more to talk about about the positives of this movie. I did enjoy it. I don't want that to be taken off. Yeah. The Mission Impossible movies have never been known for their strong villains anyway. I think he is a cut above the ones we've had so far. And that's kind of where I'm at with the plot too is that it's not an amazing story. You know, there's just twists and turns all over the place. It gives you such whiplash. I'm sure there are like really... I'm sure there's plot holes or things that you want to look at. There are. And if you want to right, look really detailed. Right, right, right. But honestly, that's not what these movies are about. They're about like a basis of a story with all these twists and turns and then escapism on top of it. And it was impressive to me that they kind of did a little bit of character work here. I wasn't expecting really any. And the big character question I have with it is it's asking who Ethan Hunt is as a hero. Um... He's had all these tough choices to face throughout his career, his philosophy, and I think his greatest flaw is that he's willing to save the one man in the moment, and then he doesn't think about the overall big picture sometimes. Um, And that's just who he is. That's what makes him the person that Alec Baldwin says right before, that also makes you the person that I trust the most with this job. Uh, And it's the whole thing that sets the plot in motion because he decides to save Luther and gives up the plutonium. So, you know, that's just a shade that we really haven't had from this character, and it's been five movies. And I actually think it's a really interesting theme because most movies do say, un, you know, unfortunately, you probably have to save the greater good. And that's, you know, that that's an oldest time thing. Will you save your girlfriend or will you save the city? And, you know, it's an oldest time thing, but, you know, typically people try to do both, but they really dive into it here. And it's really, really interesting. Right. Um, they do? When does it ever come up after the opening scene though that's what i'm confused about they, they bring it up halfway and then they bring it up toward the end again yeah what does he do toward the end though um when he's in like at the very end when he's in the hospital bed they bring it up 
Uh, Angela well, yeah, Bassett. they bring it up, they talk about it, but where is it portrayed in the action? If it's going to be the major theme of your movie, it needs to be portrayed in the action scenes, doesn't it? With the female officer, when he can either keep his cover and, like, you know, keep it going, or take out the men and save this one cop. And he decides to take out the three men and just make things more complicated for him going forward. Mm-hmm. It's that That's w- a good one. Yeah. It's the one life versus millions. And he's still working to save millions, but he he can't... He's just physically not able... He can't to, bring himself to let well, an innocent person die. Right. Or even yeah. a not-so-innocent person. Wouldn't it be easier for him to have killed Solomon Lane and put on a mask and they just bust him from there? Although there are plenty of times when, like, when he finally gets into the helicopter, he tosses those guys right out the window. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. But, right. I mean, he has no problem killing bad guys. Uh, the whole thing is about the fallout of all of his decisions. You know? That's what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the ripple effect of who he is as an agent. And how that creates can create chaos and create problems for him as well. Yeah, I I agree that the theme was definitely a new take and definitely a worthwhile exploration. I just wish they did a little bit more with it and they didn't directly call it out. Like that speech that Alec Baldwin had at the beginning of the movie, that was almost corny to me because he was literally just saying, this is going to be the theme of my movie. Will you save lives or will you save one life? And it, it just felt too on the nose for me. But that's personal preference. It's not enough to bring the movie down into the negatives for me by any stretch. What I did love about this movie was the action scenes. And I think it's high time that we talk about them. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so I, let's just talk about this bathroom scene first. There's Fine this me. awesome fist fight scene that's all plastered all over the trailers, and rightfully so, because they originally wanted to shoot this over the course of four days, and they ended up taking two months, if I recall correctly, oh my God. to film this scene. Wow. They put a shizzle ton of work into making this work, and it shows. This movie went way over budget, uh, and most of it is not the fault of the production. Like, Tom Cruise broke his ankle. And you can see him oh, breaking yeah. his ankle in a I, different scene that we're going to talk about later. In a sadistic way, I love that it, they left it in the movie. It's it's great. I mean, that's the only take they got of it, so they had to. Because he broke his ankle, they couldn't do it again. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Nate, spare no expense. Go ahead, back back to what you were saying. Yeah, I want to see if either of you guys picked up on this. Because um, I haven't seen any like news articles on it. But there's this one part during the bathroom scene where they go up to the character who they think is Lark. Yeah. And Henry Cavill just lets out this flurry of punches. And I swear on my life that I heard the punches queued up to the Mission Impossible soundtrack. It, the punches literally landed like bump, 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 bump. I heard it. I heard it in the punches. And I want to know if they actually sounded it together. Because if they did, that's amazing. And I love it. Wouldn't be shocked. I don't know. They did that in the trailer. So I would not be shocked. I need to see this movie again. I can't wait to see it again. Yeah, that Please is- let me know when you guys see it, if you hear it, because yeah. I in the theater, I literally laughed out loud because it was just so awesome how they tied it together. It was great. Uh, I wrote a recent retrospective about, on my personal blog, about Mission Impossible and what makes the action scenes work so well. And the, the thesis that I came down to, the hypothesis that I was kind of working with, is that... The Mission Impossible movies, you know, like you have your superhero movies and stuff, and those have, you know, they're big exciting action scenes, but they're unrelatable. There's sky beams, and they're fighting aliens and everything. Mission Impossible's best action moments are based off of pure human fear. Like, 
you can relate to Tom Cruise freaking the fuck out that he's dangling above the... I am um, freaking out. I'm freaking out for him. Right, exactly. Because you know (laughs) what it means to be afraid of heights. You're freaking out because you're afraid of drowning when he has to hold his breath for six minutes. And this movie does that a ton with the halo jump, with the helicopter, um, maybe not so much with the bathroom fight, with the motorcycle drive against oncoming traffic. Psychopath. Right. So, like, these are all relatable things that get your adrenaline pumping because you know what it means to have vertigo. You know what it means to, like, be afraid that you're going to pass out and die. Nate, could you imagine running after that guy jumping through buildings and stuff? You ran a marathon. You're a sub-submitted 800 runner. (laughs) That scene was a lot of fun, too. It really was. You have the comedy where Benji's not looking at the, the device correctly. Right. You have Tom Cruise literally jumping from building to building. Um, and I thought one of the cleverest puns that the movie pulls off, the CIA agent's name is Walker. And he walks the entirety to that elevator while Tom Cruise <laughs> is hunting him and his name is Hunter. Uh, yeah, and he's running that. after him through the city. It's, I did not catch it's that. It's great theming. And there's a lot of that throughout this movie that really sells it. Uh, it does a good job there. Nady, I love you, but I think that just fell into place for you. I think you were stretching a little for that one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. There is not a single scene in this movie where Henry Cavill's character runs. Ever. He is always walking. He walks to the helicopter. He walks to the elevator. Even in the fight, he walks to the other guy in the bathroom scene. He never runs. I think that is intentional. Yeah. The hammer scalpel thing that they talk about with just the Mm -hmm. differences in style perfectly put to effect. There's a quadrillion double crosses in here. Um, Yeah, and actually that's where, not not to cut you off, but I actually think that's where the movie is elevated. Because for me, the first half is great, and it's just about as good as any other Mission Impossible movie, maybe slightly above. And then you have the halfway point with the double crossing that Andrew's talking about, and everything else after it is just, this is the best Mission Impossible movie they've ever made, for me personally. Right. So the big the big one is that Henry Cavill is John Lark. John Lark is who they've been tracking the whole time. He's supposed to be the head of the Apostles, the person that's trying to break out Solomon Lane. It turns out Cavill is John Lark. His big plan is to set off the plutonium in a place that would not only kill all the people um, in Kashmir, but it would actually be really close to a water supply that would compromise the water of about a third of the world. It's kind of diabolical. It's really yeah, messed it's up. It's really messed up. Yeah. I think, you know, as far as evil plans go, that's a pretty solid one. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah, but he does, yeah. A, he does a really good job of playing both sides, both in the action scenes end throughout the movie like there's an idea that he's going to be evil but like you never truly know until he finally plays his hand right Mm -hmm. but then on top of that so when he when we find out that he's working for him for solomon lane and then we find out that when he expresses that to lane benji is in fact solomon lane i was like oh my god this is so good great execution too this movie got me twice with those kind of mask reveals. They got me with that one, and then they got me again with the Wolf Blitzer one early in the movie, where they set up this whole doomsday scenario. I was completely buying it because the movie's called Fallout. You know, maybe he met they messed up that badly, um, and then they just mm-hmm. completely pull the rug out from under you. Smash cut to opening credits, and I was like, "Let's go, let's go." That was great. I was right with you, Drew. Like, granted, I I do like to turn my my brain off a little bit for these kinds of movies so I can enjoy those twists as they come up. Um, The two double crosses 
that involve the classic Mission Impossible masks, they get me every time. Right. <laughs> They're so good. Yeah, it's, it's. I like to think I'm a smart guy, but then they pull off that crap. It's like impossible. Like, uh, How can you predict that? Like, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> it's so, it's the best MacGuffin. It's like one of my favorite movie mm. MacGuffins. Um, but yeah, like action scene wise, as far as I don't know which one's your favorite. That's a tough oh, one. I mean, as much as I love pretty much all of them, that this is easy. The 45-minute stretch of Luther disarming a bomb, Ilsa trying to save Benji and apprehend Solomon Lane, and Ethan Hunt climbing up a helicopter, chasing down Henry Cavill, hijacking that one, and then that whole chase and fight, that 45-minute stretch of all those three things intertwining, I my heart, you, you think I was running with them. My heart was beating, <laughs> my breath was inhaled. Like, when... When Ilsa finally saves Benji and apprehends Solomon Lane, you could hear multiple people in the theater exhale as a sigh of relief. Like, everybody was holding their breath in anticipation of what was going to happen. Right, because I wouldn't Just have put it past them to kill Benji. Like, I would not have Unbelievable put it past Unbelievable directing. Like, yeah. The entire theater, not the entire theater, but you could hear multiple people go, <gasps> Nate, do you like, agree okay, well. <laughs> that the helicopter was the apex? Uh, yeah, I think I most appreciated the helicopter rather than taking the whole 45 minutes as a as a whole, but again, all, all the action scenes in this movie are phenomenal. I can't really knock are. any one of them. It's really hard to pick one. I just, I love the helicopter thing, but I think I'm going to give a little love to the motorcycle scene. There's a good motorcycle scene in Rogue Nation. This is a great motorcycle chase and getaway. That whole stretch of time in the middle where they break Lane out, then he's on the motorcycle trying to escape, and then it's the car chase where he eventually ends up running over Ilsa to get to where he needs to go. Just... The, the score dropped. Jake, were you the one that told me this, that the score yeah. drops out at that moment? Because I remember thinking, this as, as cool and well shot as this is, there's something really odd about it. And then it hit me. It's silent. They just let the chase play as right. a chase. There's no music. They mm-hmm. just let it go silent. And I'm like, how? That is so fascinating. And right. you really you can really hear all the, you know, the twists and the turns and the revving and the chasing and all of it. It was so interesting. Right. And really effective, I thought. Not to go undone, though, I, something we haven't touched on, the halo jump. Tom Cruise actually jumped out of a plane three times for this. <laughs> it's, I mean, granted, I would, too. I've been skydiving, and I think it's unbelievable. I love it. I had right. so much fun skydiving. I love how they— <laughs> Yeah, he's crazy. They added the wrinkle of him getting struck—of uh, Walker getting struck by lightning, and then he has to go save him, and then Walker gives him attitude. Like, fuck, I, that was the first moment. Mm-hmm. I was like, screw that guy. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> screw, screw this guy. Uh, Hen- Henry Cavill eats it in— a really great death. I actually, I loved this. And I, um, really? I've been, I've been, well, yes, but I've been talking about this for so long. So plant, um, plant and payoff is typically like a screenwriter's tool. Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote and directed this uses plant and payoff in an action scene with the helicopter hook. And I thought it was just brilliant. Like the hell, the helicopters crash. There's a hook dangling. You see it. It adds to the scene because it hooks on and has them, has them fighting, has them fighting. It kind of uses them as a, you know, as a safe point. But then Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt, decides to rip it down and use it as the final blow to kill Henry. I was just like, yes, you have me. You have my firstborn. You have me. I was all about it. It's unbelievable. I could not well, get enough. <laughs> I totally uh, followed the plant and payoff, and that was what the intention was. I just feel like that was probably the weakest part of the action scenes for me because... I couldn't suspend my disbelief that the hook would catch on to the rock. Not once, 
twice and then conveniently onto Henry's I, face. You I know? agree that was ridiculous, oh. but I was like, you know, but you know what? That, in these movies, it felt like Fast and Furious for me in that moment. Yeah, Nate, you lose this one. I, this that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, for me, I'm like, I'm this on board. Was, right. I'm on board. Super with cool. Um, All right, like. I I I liked the helicopter like sliding down the canyon, um, and into that like crevice also in the wall. Awesome. I bought all that, but like I know how climbing stuff works, and that hook would never have caught onto that rock. Right. And when it did it again, I was like, "Come on!" And when it hit onto his face, it was kind of funny. But, <laughs> See, I thought um, they reinvented the classic villain falls to his death thing because I. Oh yeah, I was just talking about like, I've had enough. I've had enough of villains falling off things to their death. And then this one does it. I'm like, nah, fine. You can do it. Right. And again, I, I don't want right. to be labeled negative Nancy here. I'm just because <laughs> me and saying, just too high. Saying my opinions. <laughs> I still enjoyed the action scene. I just thought that particular part of the action scene was a little silly. Yeah. Okay. We need to start wrapping up here. Like now. We don't. Uh, Nate, why don't you give your final thoughts here? Absolutely, go see this movie. It is definitely top tier Mission Impossible movies. I'm gonna have to rewatch Ghost Protocol to see where this fits just because i remember so much of ghost protocol and it really stuck with me and then the original was still really really fun too so i'm gonna have to probably give it a little rewatch over the next year just to see where this all fits but mission impossible fallout is hands down a fantastic action movie in its own right completely detached from all the sequels and when scaled up to the pretty high standard that the rest of the series is set it's right up there on the top definitely go see it enjoy it and gush with all the action scenes that we've been talking about here <laughs> right jake final thoughts yeah i'm pr- i think i'm pr- i might be the highest on this movie so yeah i just i'm super high on this movie i think it's better than any of the borns i think it's easily the best mission impossible i think it's better than all the daniel craig bonds i think it's just through the roof super well done um if you like action to any extent you i don't know why you wouldn't go see this movie because even if you think Mission Impossible is redundant, this one blows that you know that trope out of the water. So absolutely go see it. See it twice. It's absolutely worth it. Movie Pass isn't working. Still go see it. I don't care. Right. Pay Great. the money. Definitely yeah. pay the money. Yeah. Um, Nate, you giving lip service to Ghost Protocol I think is fair because I don't want to shortchange that movie too. That movie was very influential into what's happened with this franchise. Uh, Mission Impossible 3 was a step in the right direction. But it was kind of like holding on to some of the older aspects. And it was a mixture of the newer aspects. Ghost Protocol is when they embraced what their motto as a franchise was. Which is, we're going to make the most consistent and amazing action daredevil stunt spectacle in Hollywood today. How do you top this? Like, this is... I, I can't wait to see, to be honest. I think Christopher McCoy does a really good job here. Mission Impossible Fallout, please go see it as soon as possible. And that'll do it for our review tonight of Mission Impossible Fallout. And that'll do it for this episode of the Middle Seats Podcast. Before we go, Nate Longarini, how can they tell their friends they can find us on the internet? All right, so here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on both SoundCloud and iTunes. So keep a lookout for those links. For any questions, comments, and updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter, both at The Middle Seats. Uh, And if you like what you hear and you want to see more content, let us know and spread the word. 
You can also listen to our spin-off podcast, The Freeze Frame, where we take a step into the time machine and we talk about movies that are a little older but have to do with movies that we're upcoming and reviewing. We haven't exactly nailed down a Freeze Frame movie yet, but be on the lookout. It's going to probably have something to do with one of the releases in the next couple of weeks. We also have not pinpoint when we're going to be back. We're probably going to be sticking to this every other week schedule. Eventually, we're going to get back to our every week schedule, but not quite yet. We're trying to ease back into it and get you guys content. Um, I'm also been releasing some promo videos, um, just of some of the highlights of the episode. If you guys are liking those, let me know, share them with your friends so we can have everybody listening to the middle season, enjoying a great time at the movies with Jake, Nate, and I. That will do it for this week's episode of the Middle Seats Podcast. For Nate Lungarini and for Jake Hensler, this mission is completed. I'm Andrew Oje. Take a seat, everyone. We'll be back soon.